Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about playing Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games with kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So this story began with uh, the YouTube channel Draven Swiftbow, which I've been following for a while now. Um, he decided to do something called the Goblin Test. And the Goblin Test is a fun and informal way of measuring the relative power of player characters in a given edition of Dungeons & Dragons by rolling up a typical fighter using that system's rules, using that edition's rules, and then having that fighter fight an endless stream of goblins and see how many goblins that first-level fighter can take down before dying. So Draven Swiftbow ran a goblin test for every edition from 1st through 5th. So starting with 1st edition AD&D up to 5th edition. I can't remember whether he did 3.0 or just did 3.5. But he did 1st, 2nd, one of the thirds, certainly 3.5 and possibly 3.0 as well. 4th, I think he might have done... D&D Essentials, the kind of 4th edition light that they released to try to save 4th edition before they just bit the bullet and came out with 5th edition, and then of course 5th edition. And in each one, you know, he used the standard uh, method of rolling up a character, and he used the standard combat rules. So he used rolling initiative each round, when it was fifth, first edition, he used weapon speed. For second edition, he used um, static initiative and death saving throws. You know, for instance, when he did fifth edition, he did some of them on camera, and he did a series of them off camera as well, and recorded the results, and then did like an average. Uh, so it was, a, it was a really entertaining series of videos. Got some surprising results. Second edition was actually one of the more powerful. Um, in fact, he even rolled up a, a fairly mediocre fighter for second edition, but he ended up defeating one of the highest amounts of goblins. And he named that character Tar Markvar. And then he, uh, he ended up... Uh, humorously referring to the rest of the goblin tests as the tar tar markvar invitational challenge like these fighters would come up and tar markvar would be uh watching their performance to see if they could beat his record and stuff and he had pretty mediocre stats anyways i thought it was a really entertaining series of videos but i noted that he did not do he didn't do basic um any of the any of the flavors of basic and he didn't do OD&D. And I thought, hey, I should do this for OD&D and for maybe the basics as well. And then I thought, well, it's a cute test and I really enjoyed the video series, but you know, there's more to D&D than just fighting goblins. You know, if you really wanted to, to measure the difficulty of a rule set, 
you might want to try to measure other types of activities, like how hard is it to find and disarm traps or avoid traps or survive traps, you know, and things like that. Um, how hard is it to find secret rooms and thus possibly get advantages that will help you survive longer in the dungeon or be more successful in the dungeon? So, you know, I, I kind of daydreamed about this for a bit and I, I thought, yeah, I should just, I should roll up an, like a zero edition dungeon and roll up a party like a zero edition party and do this goblin test, but like run this fictional party through this fictional dungeon. And I quickly realized that that would be ridiculous because basically it would be playing D and D with yourself. And then I thought, wait a minute, why don't I get my kids to run the characters? <laughs> you know, why don't I just get my kids to play zero edition D and D? So, uh, one thing that, uh, well, as soon as I discovered original Dungeons and Dragons, um, it kind of quickly became one of my gamer goals to run at least one adventure in every single edition of the game, uh, within reason, for instance, like I, I, uh, I never really intended to run 3.0 because I never played 3.0. And if 3.0 were that great, they wouldn't have come up with 3.5 so quickly. So I would just, you know, run either 3.5 or uh, Pathfinder first edition, as we'll have to start calling it, um, and count that as three as the third edition era. And I'm on the fence about whether I would really um, run fourth edition. I probably would for completion. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an addition warrior. Um, I uh, will probably make up my mind about fourth edition when I get a chance to kind of look at it and give it a try rather than just assume that it's bad because everybody else says it's bad. Because I actually do know quite a lot of people who say it's not as bad as people think. Anyways, none of that changes the fact that I really wanted to run um, original Dungeons & Dragons. And I actually wanted to run the first three booklets... And then Greyhawk. And then, you know, maybe if I had players or PCs of a high high enough level run the original Temple of the Frog from the Blackmore supplement, because that's a that's a pretty a pretty uh, challenging adventure. Um that's probably about as far as I take it. I mean I guess Eldritch Wizardry has, you know, new spells, new monsters, new options and stuff like that. But you know, the, the more stuff people piled on to it, the less, the less it feels like that kind of romantic idea I have of the totally stripped down back to the basics, um, version of Dungeons and Dragons that I always, you know, that, that, that attracts me to original D and D in the first place. Anyways. So when I, when, uh, I dismissed this idea of running a OD&D goblin test that was really me running a fake party through a dungeon and I switched to asking my daughter if she would like to try out original Dungeons and Dragons and I set about kind of doing uh preparing for that now one of the things 
like I've read I've read through the the three original booklets um, so many times I can't even remember how many times I've read through them. Um, and one thing that bothers me is that the combat system, which is effectively the same combat system that we still use today, and and in every version of Dungeons and Dragons, you roll a d twenty, try to roll high, and if you roll high enough, you hit the armor class. You know we've changed whether armor class is descending or ascending. We've changed what bonuses you get to add to the roll. But for the most part, roll roll a d20, roll high to hit hasn't changed since that first, the, the, that first publication. But it's called the alternative combat system. It says it's like, if you don't want to use chain mail, use this instead. And to be honest, it's always going to be easier to just use that alternative combat system because first of all you don't have to go out and get a copy of chainmail and figure out how that works but also because you know coming at it from the from the future from our or from from our era looking back it's like well it's effectively the same thing that i'm already used to roll a d20 and roll high so but it, it bothered me that it was called like it I guess it gave me the impression that Gary Gygax intended that to be used if you if you for some reason couldn't or just wouldn't use chainmail but that he that he hoped and expected you would try to use chainmail first. So I got a, a PDF of chainmail. And I, that I'm not a war gamer. Um there's a review of Swords and Wizardry. Um in fact it might be Ben Milton's. He just recently reviewed Swords and Wizardry complete. Um, it might be his review. Um, and if not, it's an, it's another recent review of Swords of Wizardry that I, that I, um, or, or one that I discovered recently, but basically he said that the reason that a retro clone of zero edition has to exist is because although it's a great game, those three little brown booklets are written in a way that you have to be a gamer, a war gamer from the Great Lakes region to know to know what they're talking about and how to play it and i think like that that hits the nail on the head it's not even just being a war gamer it's like you have to be part of the kind of lake geneva and twin cities and kind of the the, the greater great lakes you know tactical war gaming society that gary gygax was a part of this kind of community within the the kind of in national and international community of war gamers that Gary Gygax was a part of and helped cultivate. There's just a lot of assumptions that if you weren't part of that milieu, you're just not going to get easily. It's going to be very difficult for you to figure out what you're meant to do, how you're meant to actually play this game. Um, and that was a thing that I think it's pretty clear that Gary Gygax assumed his original audience for Dungeons and Dragons was going to be war gamers. And it turns out that was not the case. But anyways, I decided I really wanted to try to roll, run the chainmail combat rules. So to make sure I wasn't missing anything, I read the entirety of chainmail, including all the stuff about mass combat, which is the bulk. That's the, that's the core of the game. That's what chainmail is. It's a, it's meant to be a realistic simulation of mass combat in the middle ages, which is a very broad historical term. Anyway, that can go from 
just after the fall of the Roman Empire all the way up to the Renaissance. Um, so there's actually quite a widespread of types of soldier in there. And I guess you have to decide for yourself where you're going to set the time period, where specifically and what you're going to allow and disallow. But anyways, eventually I got to the single combat section and the fantasy supplement, which are the parts that are most relevant to to trying to run Dungeons and Dragons. Although you do have to read the wider section for certain things that are not repeated in the the individual combat and fantasy supplement, for instance, that the initiative order is only given in the mass combat section. So if you're going to figure out how initiative works, you have to read it from there. There's a lot of stuff um, about, you know, missile fire and cover and, you know, um, accuracy and things like that. Measuring, you know, uh, you get these dowels and mark them off at one inch increments and stuff. And then you, you know, your missile fire has a range of hitting in between the, these two areas or, you know, it's, it gets really, really complicated. And a lot of that you're not going to actually mess with. I eventually I, it was, there was so much to sift through that I eventually made a little cheat sheet, um, for how I would basically put together how I would run the chainmail version of combat, um, cobbling together what what I could uh, deduce from the uh, the individual combat and fantasy supplement tables, and what I what I needed to draw from the mass combat in order to make those work. And I, I mean, I also talked to some people on some of the old school Facebook groups. This was before I discovered the. Um, the OD&D style groups. So I, I uh, my only recourse was first edition AD&D groups I used to be a part of. Um, and some of them were, uh, had some, uh, some interesting or some experience trying to run zero edition and some, some good advice and some good, uh, some good suggestions. So let's see my house rules document that I haven't looked at for a while because I gave up using the chainmail combat system. Um, so basically roll for surprise, of course, um, roll for initiative D six for each party. Higher goes first. Each combatant can take one of the following actions resolved in the following order. Delay, choose to go last. Now that's, I, when I talked about melee, um, that's a very important uh, consideration that, you know, it's it, in modern D&D, we assume that the, the side or the, the PCs who win initiative always move first because generally you can move and act, at, you know, in the same turn. But there could be a very good tactical reason to delay your movement and make the other, make your opponent move first. So delay, choose to go last. Move or split move, because elves can split move. Elves can move, fire, and then move again. Um, if you can't split move, then missile fire comes after the movement phase. Melee comes next, and then spells. That's, a lot of people, when they do run... Any any flavor of old school D and D, and they use phases. 
they won't use those phases in quite the same order that I put them in. But I, uh, I, I have a strong feeling that moving is the quickest thing you can do. You might almost do it as a reaction, like, you know, especially if you're going to flee. Um, missile fire is probably the next thing that's going to result be resolved because, uh, your a missile weapon will probably reach its target before somebody closing into melee can reach their target then melee. And then I feel like spells <clears throat> spells should be complicated and difficult. So they should always go off last. Um, and, and effectively you've been taking the entire round of combat to prepare and to like to ready and cast your spell and the effect of it only actually takes off or only takes effect right at the end. Um, then repeat the losing side, check monster morale if necessary, roll, roll initiative and repeat. And then I have some descriptions of what's have, how split moves work. So you take half your movement, fire missiles, and then take the rest of their movement. So the initial move is taken first, missile fire was resolved with the other missile fire, and then the remaining move immediately follows. So you do half your movement in the movement phase, then you take your missile fire, and as soon as you've, as soon as you've made your missile attacks, you take the rest of your movement, even though it's no longer the movement phase. Um, however, if, if any of this movement brings you within 10 feet of an enemy melee combatant, combatant then there would be an attack of opportunity. I was still using attacks of opportunity when I wrote this. Then missile fire. So because I was using chainmail, if there were enough combatants, I was going to use the mass missile fire rules, which is 1d6 um, per combatant, basically. And to make that work, you would have to... Each group would basically have to uh, fire at the same target or targets with the same armor, armor class. Um, and I gave an example of how this would work. Six goblin ar archers take aim at a party in which a fighter and a cleric are both wearing plate armor and carrying shields, which counts as fully armored because remember, Chainmail has the descriptive armor class rather than the numerical armor class. So they choose them as targets. They require a roll of a five or a six to inflict, to inflict even one hit. They will gain plus one to their roll because they're at short range. Um... And if the if the targets were lightly armored, they would inflict two hits regardless of the roll because of um, how archers perform against lightly armored people. So basically, oh yeah, so it's, it isn't even one d six per uh, per archer; it's just per group. You just roll a d six, and a five or a six is a hit. Then, if you ha if if you if there's not enough combatants to 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 run mass missile fire then you have to use individual missile fire, which is 2d6. And basically, the reason I kept making allowances for using the mass combat rules is because when there's a lot of people on the field, rolling 2d6 for each attacker can get pretty cumbersome. It's a lot of dice to be rolling. So... Mass melee is not appropriate because... Um, Basically, you if you have a monster with a lot of hit dice, it's possible to run that monster as a mass melee combatant. Because basically, 
as I mentioned when I was talking about chainmail before, um, one combatant, which is usually, uh, usually referred to as a man in the chainmail rules, is the same as a hit die in, in Dungeons and Dragons. It's the, it's the exact same concept. So when you say that a troll has six hit dice, you're saying that the troll, atta the troll attacks like five ordinary soldiers, or like six ordinary soldiers. So you may as well run that troll as six soldiers and start start getting into the mass combat rules rather than making rolling 2d6 for each hit die you know because the D&D &D rules do say that a troll is entitled to six attacks against a first level PC and you don't want to roll 2d6 six times on the troll on one troll's turn first of all nobody's going to survive that anyway there's you know there's no chance of of surviving that many attack rolls and secondly it's just again it's a lot of dice to be rolling it's a lot of time sitting around waiting to resolve six different attacks so instead consider that troll a battalion of six i don't know medium foot depending on what the troll's armor class ends up being and then resolve the attack according to the mass combat rules and then you basically you could make one die roll or six or roll six d sixes rather than twelve d sixes so um and then i then I had a little cheat sheet of all the weapon class effects, so um when you get to parry and stuff, and I mentioned that and when I discussed uh chainmail in my previous my previous episode. And then I describe how morale is, is checked and stuff like that. Anyways, I put a lot of work into this. Um, and then in uh, I started reading old copies of the Strategic Review, which you can, you can get from various places online in PDF forms. And, in, and I think it's in issue two. Um, somebody had written to Gary to ask about resolving chain mail. Um, about resolving combat combat using chain mail and he basically spells out he's like look where he basically spells out um, that you're supposed to use the alternative combat system for most of the fights that you would get into in a dungeon and then he gives an example of one fighter fighting off six orcs in a dungeon, but he still resolves that entirely using the so-called alternative combat system, rolling a d20 to hit. I think the only variation is that the orcs don't just try to kill him, they try to overbear him, so they use like a, a rule of, of how instead of rolling the damage dice, or the damage dice indicating hits, it's sort of how many people you can throw off, so, so the the orcs overbear the fighter and then on his turn he rolls and he scores a hit and he rolls a d6 and that's how many orcs he throws off and then you know and things like that but it's, it's pretty clearly using this so-called alternative combat system and, and this this article makes it pretty clear that actually unless you are outdoors with an army fighting another army he did mean for you to use that alternative combat system all along it was just it was just poor editing, really. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't really blame anybody for, for that piece of poor editing because who at that time could possibly have edited that text and identified that issue? Like right now, now we have 44 years of RPG experience 
to draw on and say this is a sticking point that people are going to people are going to stumble over this and you need to clarify that but at the time who in the entire world would have been qualified to read the rough draft of the original dungeons and dragons and identify what really needed clarification what didn't because i think basically only gary gygax would have understood it and everybody else the whole thing would have seemed confusing so you know there's there's no possible way they could have could have done much better but that you know it turns out that you don't actually need to run chainmail however i did run my daughter through a little bit of this dungeon and i when combat broke out we used chainmail we only did it once um because not long after that i discovered this article in the strategic review and we never did that again we just said fine we're just switching to rolling a d20 that is so much easier anyways the combat system aside i also needed an old school dungeon to run otherwise there's no adventure and i mean it's it's really really clear from the original from the whole supplements really um but the original edition of of dungeons and dragons that that you were mainly supposed to be dungeon crawling this was a game about dungeon crawling and that's you know it's in the name dungeons and dragons it's not wilderness and dragons it's not urban adventures and dragons so i needed an old school dungeon and i had a very specific idea about you know what an old school dungeon would be like. I mean, there's a brief description in the Underworld and Wilderness booklet. Um, first of all, there's a little sample dungeon, which is just, for even for how small it is, it's just mind-boggling. And it actually says in the description, like, do not actually use this. This is, this is, uh, this is just meant to uh, give you some ideas of the kind of things that you might do far more spread out. But if you put this many crazy things, including, you know, teleportation brooms and stuff and mazes and things like that in, uh, in such a small area, your players are really going to be upset. Um, and then he gives a few hints about what the, the original Greyhawk dungeons were like, including things like a, a, a giant's bowling alley is one of the things, you know. You can also find some more details about the original Greyhawk dungeon by reading Kent David Kelly's book Hawk and More, where he uh, he's apparently read every single thing anybody has ever read or said on the internet or in any forum or in any interview about playing in Gary's original Greyhawk campaign. And he apologizes profusely for not having every single detail of this dungeon, but he does have quite a lot of of information about what was in there. And it definitely gives you an idea of how, I think we call it gonzo now, um, where just how random some of the things were. There was apparently this one room that was all full of computers, and they all converged <clears throat> on a kind of central computer. And these are 70s computers that filled rooms. These aren't like little tiny modern microchips or tablets or things. It was like those old school things that you would see like in in the movie war games or in you know 2001 a space odyssey and things like that and there was this crazy dwarf in the middle who like ran all the computers and he wasn't entirely he wasn't immediately hostile 
but he also wasn't good and interacting with him could be very dangerous. And you, can you imagine, you know, finding that way down deep in the lower levels? There was also like one, one, de- <clears throat> one level was devoted to a mated pair of black dragons. And you, know, you got to think like, why is there a gi- giant's bowling alley underground? Why are there computers way down underground in this uh, apparently medieval fantasy world? Why are there black dragons like several miles under the ground? Do they ever get out? Do they have like an exit to the surface where they can fly out and hunt? Does somebody come in and feed them? And these are the kind of questions that you didn't ask about the old school style of dungeon. All these things were just there to be interesting and entertaining challenges. And the the lowest level, level 13 of the original Greyhawk dungeon, which has never actually been published as far as I know. So you know, people who have things like, you know, World of Greyhawk and things like that. That's not Gary's original dungeon. He apparently kept that really secret. I don't know if this is the one that people are fighting about in court now or not. But Gary Gygax's original Greyhawk dungeon, the 13th level, was the home of the mad wizard Zagig, who, you know, that's Gygax pronounced backwards. And apparently Zagig had created all the upper levels, all the levels above, for his own amusement. He's, you know, all-powerful and insane and just enjoys running adventurers through these weird tests and challenges. And that, you know, obviously Gary built Greyhawk over a long period of time with the the only real goal of providing interesting and entertaining challenges. And then at the very end, he's like, what could possibly explain all that crazy stuff that came before? And that's what he did. You know, he himself, as the mad genius wizard, just creating it for fun. In a way, it's like an in-game, you know, putting your hands up and saying, this is, this is actually all this has just been for fun. And then, of course, Zagig would push you down a slide that led through the center of the planet and spit you out on the other end, which is what happened to Ernie Gygax's character, Tensor the Wizard of Tensor's Floating Disc fame, and eventually uh, Robilar and Tarek the Cleric, played by Rob and Terry Koontz. And they all had to walk all the way back to the city of Greyhawk. And on their way, they had lots of like Middle Eastern themed adventures, which is how things like Efreets and Jin and stuff like that got into the, uh, into the game. Cause Gary started putting stuff in from the 1000 Arabian nights so that their adventures there could have an appropriate, you know, Middle Eastern fantasy feel. Anyways, this is the kind of stuff that I wanted to put in. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to run the old school rules, I wanted an old school dungeon that that felt random and cobbled together for no other purpose than to be fun. The kind of thing where if you ever thought about what you encountered in any area and thought, why is this here and how did it get here? It would fall apart. But who cares? Because it's a fun game. So I'm not great at like mapping my own dungeons or stalking my own dungeons. So I, I often make use of 
you know, the random generation tables. And you get those in the back of every single DMG that's ever been published. But even the first edition DMG is still too late. I really wanted, I wanted as close to contemporary with the three original booklets as possible. And in the strategic view, number one, there's a very interesting article way at the end called Solo Dungeons and Dragons. And what it is is a random dungeon generator. It's the first random dungeon generator table. And and what Gary said it was for is for you to run Dungeons and Dragons for yourself. So you roll up a character and then you roll randomly on this table to start exploring the dungeon and map it as you go. And he says, save your work in case you ever want to run this for somebody else. But it's really for you to run Dungeons and Dragons for yourself. And since you're rolling randomly on a table, you never know what you're going to encounter next. But I don't know how well that would work. I've never tried it. But it works pretty tolerably well for a random dungeon generator table. And the important thing is, is it's contemporary with the original edition any kind of refinements or changes made to accommodate later editions of the of the game this predates all of that so since i've mentioned it twice now the strategic review was a magazine published by tsr intended to be their house organ where they could promote their products and include discussions of their products and um I actually had a go at publishing some of Gary Gygax's fiction and some other fiction and things like that. From its name, it sounds very wargamey. And it's another indication that originally they expected that the fantasy role-playing products and the wargame products would have the same audience. It only ran to, I think, five issues, and then it became drag. Or well, it was split into two magazines. One of which was Dragon Magazine, edited by Tim Cask, and I forget what the other one was called. And it really, they, they really must have got the message that these were two distinct communities for the most part, with very little overlap early on, because they actually started discussing the change as early as issue three. And it and, and just took them till issue five to finally like announce that or to, to put the change into effect. And they even apologized to people who, who did enjoy both products or both product lines because effectively they were going to ask you to subscribe to two different magazines instead of just one. But that was such a minority that they felt that it was it was better to to do that, to, to ask those, that small number of people who wanted both products, wanted both magazines to pay two subscriptions, then um, produce a magazine which would only, in which only half the content would ever appeal to any one, uh, one consumer. But yeah, so right away in strategic review number one, there's a random, genera- a random dungeon generator. So I set to work creating a mega dungeon um to map it out i actually i used the dungeonographer software and i set a really really wide grid i think like a hundred squares on a side and these are 10 foot squares and uh my intention was to fill that to leave as little empty space as possible so Really, this looks a lot more like, say, like Barrow Maze, which is a mega dungeon, but all on one level. 
rather than a proper multi-level mega dungeon. I still haven't actually finished this. Um, I do tinker with it every now and then. Um, because it it is actually a vaguely relaxing because it is all random generation, so I don't have to think too hard about it. So it's it's somewhat relaxing and entertaining. Like I never know what I'm going to get. Even the size and shapes of the rooms and things like that are all done by random generation. And then what goes into each room and stuff. And then I, you know, if I get a really weird result, then I have that um, that thing where I have to try to figure out why it's there and what it's doing there. Um, so it's, it is it is inherently entertaining to build it, but it's so weird that I've I've started to call it the unplayable dungeon, and my daughter's only ever seen really a very small part of it. Um, and like I said, I haven't even finished it. I think if I go any levels down, I will start putting a lot more design thought into them. They'll be smaller and more purposed um, because this first level is. It's already huge, and um, and I'm I'm like only about halfway finished with it, and I think you know it would take it. Could, you could probably spend a great chunk of your career just in this first level, because again, it's like it's it ends, it ended up being like the Barrow Maze, um, with just everything all in one level rather than rather than uh, going multi level. So I'll have to I'll have to. Uh, adopt the same thing where as you press west um it gets more dangerous rather than going down so or maybe more towards the center i think that's a good way because uh, i i did i did put a room at the center which is meant to be the uh the most like the most challenging encounter in that in on that on this level it's like a goblin barracks and you have to fight all the goblins and they have a lot of treasure as well. It's where they keep all their treasure. So, and then it also has the trap door leading to the to the next level. So maybe I should make it more challenging as you go towards the center and like the outer area, the rim areas are are the safest. Anyways, so yeah, that is uh, that is how I started working on this unplayable dungeon. And you know, I mean. If, yeah, I, I I don't think this is the kind of thing I could ever put serious players through. Um, but as an experiment, it was very entertaining. And uh, my daughter rolled up... So I had her roll up three characters, because there are only three classes. And she did luck out and get one of each. Or at least one set of stats that could lead to one of each. You know, the, the stats were very in the middle. But it's like, well, that won't be hopeless as a cleric. So she created three characters, and she ran all three of them. She really, really enjoyed the process of buying her equipment. And I realized she'd never done that before, because up to this point, I'd only ever run 5th edition for her. And, you know, we'd done the whole, you know, you start off with your standard equipment. So she'd chosen, like, you can have this or this, and you can have this or this. But she hadn't, I'd never just given her a list of stuff and said... Here's all the stuff you can buy, and this is how much money you have, and the costs are here, so buy some stuff. And she she thought that was the most fun thing ever. Um, and for a little while, she was saying that this is her favorite version of the game because you can go shopping. I said, you know, you technically, you can go shopping in 5th edition, too, just that we never actually do. Um, 
Well, sometimes a little RPG shopping can be can be fun. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, having uh, created three uh, super old school characters and uh, spent some gold on their equipment, uh, I had her uh, take those three uh, three. PCs down into the dungeon and because it was super old school there wasn't any real backstory it was just like here's the steps leading down you know it's a ruined pile there's a there's a sentence in um the original I think it's the men in magic or or possibly it's in the underworld and wilderness but it's one of the three original booklets and it's it uh it's just saying, you know, then you're ready to get your players down at the, you know, the entrance to the dungeon. And it implies that that's really all the game is, that it's, you roll the characters up and you're like, okay, you guys are at the entrance to the dungeon and then they just go down. I don't think it literally means that that is what you have to do, but that was the the impression that you, that it gets because there, there's so little description of anything else in in those three uh, booklets and like I said in in a previous episode, you know, the rules require you to get out some graph paper and map twelve levels of a dungeon all on your own. But when it comes to overworld exploration, just use this hex map from this other game and just pretend that the uh, ranger stations are castles and stuff like that. So, so she had there's a set of stairs going down. <clears throat> At the landing, she didn't know this, but there's an illusionary wall, which if she'd done a secret doors check, she would have found it was an illusionary wall, and that would lead to a corridor where you could bypass a large section of the dungeon. And then there was quite a lot of of just empty corridors with secret doors leading to other bits, and only one really accessible corridor. Um, But there was a nest of poisonous centipedes, like partway down. And I put the the nest of poisonous centipedes in there because, again, from Kent David Kelly's book where he describes the first time Gary Gygax playtested the rough draft of Dungeons & Dragons for his two kids, Ernie and uh, one of of Ernie's sisters. I always forget which one, but she played a cleric. The first thing they encountered was centipedes. And so I've always had a – ever since I read that, I've had a soft spot for putting centipedes in, and especially because, like – this is the first time I'm playing original Dungeons and Dragons with my daughter, so of course I'm going to put centipedes in there. And uh, they decided to just run past the centipedes, and centipedes don't have, you know, much of a speed, so that wasn't hard. There was a pit trap as well, and one of them fell into a pit trap and lost um, all but one hit point. And we we did this old school, so we rolled hit points, so nobody had a full hit die of hit points when we started playing swords and wizardry later i let them just have max hit points at first level i've been doing that pretty regularly since but for this one we were creating this super old school uh so there was a lot of exploration secret doors and you know checks and things and eventually they found their way into this room full of kobolds and uh they didn't know it but there was they had come in a one-way door so before the thief class, locked doors wasn't so much of a thing detailed in the rules because there was no character class that could unlock doors. There was the spell that that wizards could use to unlock doors. And there was also the spell that wizards could use to temporarily or permanently 
locked doors, but there wasn't like the non-magical lock. But there were a lot of one-way doors, like they would open one way for a PC, and no matter what, you could never come back through that door. Um, monsters can always go through doors, whether they're stuck or, or one way or not, because it, it specifically says that in the rules, that the door is always open for monsters. So these are just tools to trap your players or funnel them into certain areas. So they came in with these kobolds, and now it was time to actually run the combat. And um, these kobolds had daggers and they had slings. And um, unfortunately, the party did not win initiative, so the kobolds went first. And they actually decided to target the cleric. I think they could see he was injured. I think if I remember right, that was my justification. The cleric was the one who had fallen into the pit trap. So he was the one who looked beat up already. And uh, I did individual combat because there weren't enough kobolds. I think there was only like six. Um, there weren't enough kobolds to do the mass, the mass combat rules. So each kobold decided to not close into melee and to aim their slings at the cleric. And on two d six, they scored enough hits. The cleric was on, the cleric wasn't wearing play, only chain. So. Um, so the cleric went down (laughs) it's like, okay. Um, and it, it pretty much, um, well, it went downhill from there. Um, so it's also pretty harsh, the combat system, but the thing is it was actually really clumsy to run it because again, nobody had a, a numerical armor class. I had to sit around and say, based on what armor you've bought, would I consider you light foot, heavy foot, armored foot? And so, and then I had to think about what the kobolds were wearing. And it's, it's always useful to think about what your bad guys are actually dressed in rather than just giving them a number. But so I had to decide that these kobolds were wearing leather and they did not have shields, which counts as uh, light foot, I believe. So um, anyway, so that was like a, basically a TVK, um, which is just as well because I had not finished uh, building the rest of the dungeon. And if they'd gone further in that room or further it um in that area they would have run into places i hadn't built yet and i would have had to actually either roll up on the spot or pause and do some more architecture so um so that was my first and only attempt i mean weapon class didn't really come into play um so because it was all missile attacks so Anyways, yeah, soon after that, I discovered the article in the Strategic Review, which suggested that you shouldn't use chain mail for small-scale dungeon combat. And not too long after that, I, uh, I found that I had a copy of Swords and Wizardry White Box in my uh, cloud drive where I keep all of the retro clones I purchase, and read through that and said, you know what, I should just run this. And so ever since then... When we run ODD, we always run Swords and Wizardry. However, I have continued work building this unplayable dungeon. And like I said, I'm about half finished with this massive um, first level, which probably counts as a, a mega dungeon in its own right. Um, I've been updating the... Uh, um, 
the the monster stats so that they're actually compatible with swords and wizardry rather than simply in the uh, OD&D style. So I've, I've gone in and added the ascending armor class in brackets and things like that. Um, and the single saving throws and things like that. Um, it's possible that someday I'll actually release this as a thing. But again, like I don't really know how good it is as a dungeon because I, I literally, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm doing it so random that I'm not, I'm not doing much in the way of second guessing things. You know, when I come up with a, when I get a weird result, I'm just keeping it because I kind of want to see where that randomness goes. Anyways, that's enough rambling for this episode. When I uh, when I started planning out this episode, I thought it was going to be much more interesting than it's turned out to be. So, uh, uh, sorry about that. Um, and like I said, I don't know. Maybe maybe someday I'll do an episode where I actually go through the the room key, you know, and actually read what you find in there. Maybe describe how the rooms are connected, you know, kind of do like a virtual run through uh, sections of it. I probably have to do it in small increments because it's so big, but just to see like what the kind what kind of stuff do you get when you roll up a random dungeon using the first ever published random dungeon generator that Gary Gygax ever released. It's, it's, it's gonzo. Well, you know, I'll say that. Anyways, until then, uh, play well and let the dice fall where they may.